Hello, friends, and welcome to Through These Doors, a Fame Recording Studios podcast. I'm your host, Rodney Hall, with Fame Recording Studios, where it all started in Muscle Shoals. And together, we'll be digging deep into the history of Fame Recording Studios and the Muscle Shoals sound with the musicians, engineers, producers, and music insiders that have turned this small town into a music landmark known around the world. Welcome. Let's get it on. All right. I want to welcome everyone to uh, volume six of Through These Doors uh, from Fame Studios. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Norbert Putnam, the original bass player in Muscle Shoals from the Fame Gang, Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Uh, Norbert was the very first uh, guy to play on an international hit record in Muscle Shoals, and uh, he's got a storied history. Norbert has worked with Elvis Presley. He's worked with uh, Dan Fogelberg, uh, Jimmy Buffett, Joan Baez, Riders of the Purple Sage, and many, many <laughs> others. Uh, Norbert is is one of my dear friends and so glad to have him. And uh, up until about a year ago, he was my next door neighbor. So uh, we've met <laughs> a few times. Welcome, Norbert. Thank you for being here. And uh, I look forward to talking to you. Well, it's a pleasure to be back at Fame Studios, even though we're doing this electronically, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, your father, your father was the career opportunity that happened for all us boys. Because uh, we were just teenagers when we did Arthur Alexander's demos. And your dad came into the, the old spar demo room over in Florence and heard Arthur. And uh, I, I, he said to Tom Stafford, I'm going to build a little studio and record this guy. And he did. And the record was a hit. <laughs> so, Tell me a little bit about that, about uh, Arthur and the drugstore. So the, the, the drugstore was where all the original Muscle Shoals guys would hang out and meet. And uh, Arthur Alexander was one of those guys. Norbert, obviously, Jerry Kerrigan, David Briggs. Uh, I think Spooner hung out some there. Dan Penn, uh, Donnie Fritz, and so forth. So tell me, uh, I understand that Arthur did a few rec records over there on Judd records before you better move on. Maybe, maybe it was Anna. Right. As a matter of fact. You know how uh, that came about. Yeah. I we started going up to the drugstore when we were all about 16 years old. <clears throat> and Tom Stafford, who was the manager of the Shoals and Princess Theater, the Princess is gone now. Uh, he approached Briggs and I one night, we were coming out of a movie and he said, uh, I'm starting a publishing company, he said, and uh, we're gonna write hit songs and have hit records right here in Florence, Alabama, this store in Florence. And he said, uh, would you boys be interested in playing on some demos? I don't know that we knew what a demo was at that point, okay? But we started going over there. Oh, oh he said, we asked him, we said, well, can you pay us? <clears throat> and he said, no, but I'll get you into all the movies for free. We said, we took, even he didn't finish the sentence. We said, we'll do it, <laughs> okay? And so, so after school, we gather over there about four o'clock. And Tom would sign anybody that can make a rhyme. For the most part, the songs are awful. But this teenage rhythm section, for the first time ever, we're inventing original parts on an original song. You know, we had a band together. We were a cover band, Dan Penn and the Paul Bears. We had a Cadillac hearse we traveled in. 
<clears throat> and every bass line I ever played, I took off someone's record. And so Tom gave us the opportunity to learn how to invent a part that would work around a vocal and a song like that. And it was a couple of years before your dad showed up and we were, we were better then. And Arthur had come up the steps on that second year. The first year, awful songs, okay? Bad singers, all right? <clears throat> and, uh, and one day Arthur Alexander came up the steps. Oh, great looking guy, looked like a young Harry Belafonte, you know? About 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, and, and he couldn't play an instrument. He started to sing some of his songs a cappella. And he had this great voice. And the songs worked. He was a good writer. And so Briggs would take him out to the piano and Arthur would sing and David would find the chords underneath, okay? And uh, Arthur would stop him and say, no, no, that's not, not that chord. It, 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 that's the one, that's the one. <laughs> it would take him about 20 minutes to get a chord progression. And then we'd come out and, uh, and work on a, a, a track. And, uh, and, you know, Arthur did record uh, Pig Robbins came down from Nashville and did something. And there was another bass player here who was more advanced than I was. His name was Ray Barger, okay? And if Ray doesn't leave town, I would say he would have had the shot and it wouldn't have been me. I would be in the insurance business, okay? <laughs> so, so that's how it all began, you know? And your dad showed up. Your dad was the entrepreneur we needed, you know? It, it, Tom Stafford was never going to build a real studio. And so your dad came in and sure enough, the first one we recorded and it wasn't all that great. It's an old warehouse, you know, down there uh, where we did, you better move on. But uh, that's how it all began. And of course, uh, I didn't know this for years, but uh, you better move on, made it across the pond to England. And uh, George Harrison and I were talking about this in the mid 70s. <laughs> And George said, uh, he said, I remember when John Lennon brought that 45 record into one of our practice sessions. And he said, this is the greatest singer I've ever heard. He, he said, Norbert, he sang along with Arthur for two weeks trying to get the accent down. <laughs> and, and of course they were big fans. And later on when they came to America, they had us open for them in Washington, their first concert. And, and we didn't meet the, the band that night because we had to get on a midnight flight to get back to work the next day for your father. He was a slave driver, okay? <laughs> but, but George said, you know, he said, uh, he said, John Lennon was hoping you'd be at the British Embassy at 11 o'clock. He would have kissed your boots, he said. <laughs> so that was the start we got off to. So yeah, tell me about that opening for the Beatles in, uh, in DC, right? Yeah, they came in, uh, uh, George said they were testing the waters. The record is number one in England, okay? And it was just coming out in America. But they, they were booked into the Ed Sullivan show on a Sunday night. And I think it was the following Tuesday, two days later, uh, they come down to Washington. I think they took the train as a matter of fact. And it was then it was called the Washington Arena. I think it's got another. It was a, it was a, a an oblong uh, uh, in the round kind of thing. All right, and they played hockey there. They played basketball there. Okay, and, and if you look, there's some there's some film of it, black and white film. 
the stage was a boxing arena. It was square, okay? They took down the ropes. Right. And you want to talk about, a, there must have been 10,000 kids there. They had poles on each corner with a 15-inch horn speaker up there. And they only had two mics. And that was the entire PA system. None of the instruments were mic'd, okay? And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was rather primitive. So when you guys played, was, was, it, was it loud? Uh, was the crowd loud? Oh, well, first of all, here, the crowd, by the way, probably the average age was 14 to 16 year old girls. And they squealed from the moment the Beatles came out. And when we played, it was like, who are these guys? We came here to see the Beatles. <laughs> and we, we were the Righteous Brothers, one of the biggest acts in show business, right? And, and they're, they're, up, they're milling around talking to each other. Like, will these old guys ever leave? <laughs> this is 1964, I would have been 22 years old. I didn't think of that old. <laughs> but when the Beatles came on, we played at a level sort of the way we played in the studio. You know, in the studio, we didn't have headphones. And the drummers had learned to play soft enough to hear the bat, right? right? After we get headphones, we can't control the drummer, right? And then we all need booths. We should have sent the drummer away, and we stayed in the studio, you see? But, um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, but the Beatles, you know, they came into town, <clears throat> and that record was promoted like American music is promoted. Uh, Murray the K, biggest disc jockey in New York City. He played that one song 24 hours straight and nothing else. <laughs> he must have loved it, huh? He loved something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and worked, so, worked for the Beatles. Uh, so the Beatles got a big promo right away and they were great on the Sullivan Show. But when they played that night, they came out with those giant Vox amplifiers, okay? And they were the first loud rock band that I'd ever heard. Briggs and I stayed ringside and watched it from down on our knees. I could reach up and touch the mic stands of Lennon McCartney. When they hit it, they were about 120 dB. We played it about 90, okay? Right. And I looked at Briggs and he looked at it. And Ringo's sticks were an inch in diameter. And every time he hit the snare, it came off his seat. He hit it so hard. And it was kind of a balance. It was great. It was really great. <laughs> and, uh, but, hey, but it wasn't long. You know, they only played like 32 minutes. Right. And, and they threw jelly beans at the Beatles. All the, 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 pro, the promo guys, he sold Coca-Cola and jelly beans. So they had a sugar rush like you've never seen. <laughs> <clears throat> So that's how we got started. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. I got to turn a flip a switch. I just noticed my battery's not charging. Okay. Okay. So where are you, Christy? It is Christy. Oh, Kissy. Yeah, it's, it's Kissy with no R. Kissy. That's weird, oh, but, that's um, lovely. Yeah, I, well, thank you. And I'm, I'm a Nashville native, and I'm right here in, in Sylvan Park. Ah, uh, lovely, lovely. So, Norbert, yeah, I want you to clear something up for me. So, the, the rumor has gone around. I've heard 
that my dad passed on the Beatles. And I wanted you to clear that up. I know he, uh, someone brought, brought, I think it was Tommy Rowe brought their record in. Or yeah. In yeah. And, and it's actually, yeah, Tom, we're doing Tommy Rowe. And, um, and uh, who was the producer for Tommy Rowe? He later Felton. goes up in Felton? Phil, Felton Jarvis, yeah, who, who had brought us uh, the Tams and what kind of fool do you think I am? And so Rick is engineering and, and Felton is the producer and we're about to begin a Tommy Roll album. And Tommy had uh, met the Beatles the past summer. He we had a hit record in, in Europe called Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> and uh, and he was the headliner in Hamburg, I think it was. And the promoter said, uh, well, you don't have an opening act. There's a great little band playing here. Would, could, could they come on for 15 minutes? And Tommy said, sure, what, what's their names? He said, well, it's, it, they're calling themselves the Beatles, but it's B-E-A-T, well, he asked. Well, Tommy came in, a year, he came to see us months, months later, and he's got a little tape in his hand. And it was uh, Paul McCartney in a hotel room with a mono machine, a cheap mic. And he was doing one of those songs, like I want to hold your hand or something. And, and he asked Felton, he'd listen to it before we started. And your father threaded it on that old Ampex machine. And when he hit play, we all looked at each other because the B string on the guitar was flat. <laughs> And we thought, well, a guy can't tune his guitar. So that's one of the right? And then he started to sing. It was the most trite song he ever heard. You know, something about holding a girl's hand. You know, and uh, and then the oh, the harmonies come in, and that's going to be George, John, right? The three part. They were so out of tune that your father just reached over and hit stop. And Felton Jarvis said, uh, Tommy. I don't know what you've been smoking, but it's 10 o'clock in the morning. We've got a record to make. I don't think so. That's what he said. So he officially, but everyone agreed with it. We agreed with it. Okay. It was the worst demo you ever heard of the most trite song you ever heard. Okay. All right. And so, so that's true. That's true. Felton passed. Yeah. But, what, but you know, but he wasn't really in a, in a, in a position to, to not pass. He was just listening, right? Well, you know, when the Beatles record went number one in England, it was on EMI, and they owned Capitol Records. Well, maybe they didn't know those days. Later, they do. And when they sent it to Capitol, Capitol wouldn't put it out. I think it was two or three albums before Capitol released a Beatles record. I think their first stuff was on BJ over here, right? Yes. Uh, and he used to come down and see a Steve somebody, right? Man, BJ? Steve. More Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I just had my uh, 40th birthday for the 39th time. <laughs> and, uh, and so my memory slips and slides, hang with me. <laughs> so, Norbert, tell me about how, it, let's go way back to the beginning, how you became a bass player. By accident. <clears throat> <laughs> well, maybe not so accidental. My father... My father grew up in a little town just north of the Alabama-Tennessee border up near Loretta, Tennessee, okay? And he, he was telling me about my grandfather. He said, you know, he said, we were, 
we had eight kids in our family and I was the youngest and the youngest always had to play the bass. <laughs> he said, he said, your grandfather, we had 40 acres of land and no matter what he planted, it wouldn't come up, okay? I said, well, how, how did you get by? He said, well, it turned out he was a damn good whiskey maker and we had three stills <laughs> spread out on the 40 acres. And I think he had to deal with the local sheriff or something. And my dad said, you know, my, the first job I ever had, when I was five years old, I was old enough to go and check out the steels every day because the revenues would not shoot children, okay? So they'd send the child out there and they would, they would put a, a thin twine all the way around each steel and tie it off. And he was to report back if any of them were broken. <laughs> and the family would spread out and come in. <laughs> so, but he played the bass and he, when he was about 16, he went over to Memphis and he worked on Beale Street. And he was a pretty good bass player, okay? And, uh, and, and later on, uh, when he came back here and, and, we, and I was born here, my brother Don, uh, he would play on Saturday mornings on WLAY with a guy named Autry Inman. And uh, uh, Autry came in one day, he'd made a record deal with Chet. And he said, okay, we're all moving to Nashville. <clears throat> and he, my father said, well, I can't go. He said, uh, I'm in the insurance business. I've got two sons to raise and you'll have to find somebody else. Kelso Hurston was the guitar player, by the way, who was the first local guy to make it big in a Nashville rhythm section. Right. And Kelso told me this story when they were doing Bobby Goldsboro. And he comes out and he said, did your dad ever tell you why he didn't come to Nashville with us? I never knew he had the opportunity. He said, well, he was in the insurance business. He'd hated all those years on Bill Street. And uh, he said, so we had to beat the bushes to find a bass player who would go to Nashville. And I said, well, who did you find? A kid named Buddy Killen. And Buddy Bill's the biggest publishing company in Nashville's history. So, <laughs> so it's he played, the early. He played with uh, Hank, Hank Senior, right? Yeah, yeah. Buddy, yeah. Was, Buddy was a pretty Buddy was a talented guy, and I, he gave Buddy up Killen the bass play. Yeah, yeah. Buddy Killen was from Florence, Alabama, and Shoals, and uh, went to Nashville and uh, created Tree Publishing, which became the largest publishing company in the world. But you asked me how I became a bass player. Right, And I always say to people, if young Sam Phillips doesn't leave Florence, Alabama, and go to Memphis and find Elvis, I would be in the insurance business with my father. Because uh, my dad brought, bought a house uh, near Green Hill because he wanted to teach his boys how to garden. Okay? And so I'm going to school at TM Rogers and I meet some boys right across the border over in St. Joseph. Okay? And they were putting together a band to play early Elvis music. And one of them remembered my father had an acoustic bass. And they said, well, you, you have to be the bass player. No one else up here has one. And so <laughs> my father showed me how to tune it. <laughs> and uh, I had a 45 RPM record player. And I would come home from school and try to learn how to thump, chick, thump, chick, thump, you know, that, that slap thing that uh, it was on all those great records, Bill Black did. But the funny thing was, it was so much fun playing that music 
you know, we would play sock hops at the school gym, right? And uh, uh, I talked my father in the next summer into helping me buy a Fender bass when I was 16. And Briggs and I had also played in this band with the boys from St. Joseph. Uh, we met uh, a drummer named Jerry Kerrigan from North Florence. And Kerrigan came in the fall. And he was doing the demos with uh, Terry Thompson, the great guitar. And that's how it all came together for your father. You know. Yeah. Talk about <laughs> Jerry a little bit. Jerry Thompson is, is kind of an unsung hero of Muscle Show. Oh, let me tell you. So. Uh, uh, Terry was, uh, he was our Sergeant Pepper. He led the band. He was older, you know, we were like 18, 19 years old. He was 23. He had perfect pitch and there wasn't any harmony he couldn't decipher, all right? And uh, he taught David and I uh, some theory, even though he was uneducated. He called me one day. He said, come over here, you've got to hear this, this, this jazz guitar player. It was Barney Kessel. And so I went over to his house and he played the first eight bars of this beautiful Barney Kessel thing. He picked up his guitar and played it precisely. If he heard it, he could find it, he could play it, you know? And, uh, and so he was, he was the most advanced of all of us. And he really, really helped bring David and I along, you know, a, a, a total genius. Right, and he, he, he burned out quickly. Yeah, had uh, had addiction issues, I understand, and uh, passed away uh, before he saw any success. Although he did co-wrote uh, co the, the the B side of Arthur Alexander's hit. Uh, yeah, and the Beatles, the Beatles put, yeah, the Beatles put that on their first record. Exactly, and then the, and then the A side was done by the Rolling Stones. Right. So right away, some great publishing going on. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, no real success happens at the drugstore, city drugstore in Florence, uh, other than just uh, all you guys meet, which was a, a huge deal in the long run. Uh, but yeah. then you move. My dad moves to Wilson Dam Highway, splits up with Billy and and uh, Tom, um, yeah, and. Builds a studio, somewhat of a studio, moves into a building, an old tobacco and candy warehouse, mm -hmm. and puts a recorder, his, his recorder in, and you guys start doing some things there. Tell us about those first sessions, which, uh, from what I understand, were Arthur Alexander. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I don't know if I played on anything over there other than Arthur. <clears throat> now, now uh, your father was still. Uh, using Ray Barger from time to time. And Briggs said to me that they did, um, you better move on with Ray Barger and a couple of other guys. They didn't quite come off before they brought Kerrigan and I. You know? And uh, so I think that was the only thing I, I did with him there was Arthur Alexander. Because I'm now going to school at UNA, you know, and uh, playing on weekends with Dan Finn and the Paul Bears. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I don't think I really played on anything until he builds the modern studio you're in now right. of fame. And then we did Jimmy Hughes and all that. And then it was sort of us for everything once he builds a new room. Right. 
So yeah, Jimmy Hughes, Steal Away, had been recorded at Wilson Dam. I don't know if he played on that or not, but he did record a version of that at Wilson Dam, which was not the hit. When he came. I don't think I, I don't think I played on that. I think I played it on, on the one. I know I played on the hit version. Supposedly, it was the first song recorded in that building, Steal Away. And it uh, may have been. And it was, so it was the first song recorded in the building, but it was not the first hit. Uh, That's true. Rick couldn't it, sell it, I remember. Right, it sat on the <laughs> shelf for four or five years. So uh, what do you remember about Jimmy Hughes? He's another unsung hero that, uh, you know, without well, he was a really, Hughes, He was a really good singer. And didn't he write a few good songs too? He wrote Still Away. He did. Oh, did he? Okay. Well, well that, was, that was a great, great song. Yeah. And, and a nice guy. And, uh, but the only thing I remember after that was um, uh, the Tams. What kind of fool do you think I am? I mean, right. Yeah. And I guess that, that was our second hit, wasn't it? Yep. It was probably and, the first. And, probably the first, actually. In that studio, yeah. Right. Right. But you know, it sort of it sort of put us on the map because Arthur was a one-hit wonder until we get uh, what kind of fool. Yep. And boy, that was a huge. They still play that record in, over in the in South Carolina, yep. uh, North Carolina. They call it beach music. Right. <laughs> it was right. recorded on the rocky beach of the Tennessee the, Tennessee yeah. River. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys also recorded a song on them called "Laugh It Off," which was a pretty big hit. Yeah. And then there was, then Tommy Rowe came and uh, who else was there? Uh, well, you know, it was a seminal moment when, uh, when uh, Bill Lowry makes a deal with Rick to come up here and he brings the Tams and they get a hit. But we did people like Billy Joe Royal and uh, he had a whole stable of that. Ray and yeah, and uh, yeah. Joe South came up and played guitar with us, worked weekends with us in our, our band. I think Jerry Reed was over there too. I, I, I think uh, you could ask your mother about this, but I, I would say that without Lowry showing up, the whole thing could have folded. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. He's another unsung hero. Jerry yeah, Wexler. Gets all the all the praise, but but without Bill Lowry, uh, may never gotten to Jerry Wexler. You know, it took us. It was four or five years before we leave to go to Nashville, and so we had enough business to keep it happening. And uh, I think every musician who came after us uh, owe us a, a debt of gratitude for being the trailblazers and keeping it going until someone like Aretha shows up. Absolutely. Absolutely, you guys were definitely the pioneers of the uh, of the Muscle Shows music industry, and you were there for till sixty five, right? About yeah, 65. 60, and and you know, I want to thank you for hiring me for that um, that um, I'll never go blind record. What's her name? Uh, Grace Potter. Grace Potter. Yeah. So so Norbert <laughs> played on our very first hit record. And he played on our very last hit record. And do you know, I, 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 I had not, and I had not been in that studio since 1965 when I go in and play that part. Right. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's yeah. a long time in between sessions, you know. It is. <laughs> I'm still out of work. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, so tell me about the move to Nashville. You guys decided that uh, there wasn't enough work in Muscle Shoals. I mean, fame was at that point. Fame was the only game in town. Um, yeah, and, and and you know we were sort of uh, we were sort of scab artists too. Uh, the union scale was forty five dollars a session, and a lot of times, uh, most of the times we would play eight or nine hours and sign for forty five dollars for three hours. Okay, and um, I think it was Ray Stevens who came down and was arranging a Tommy Rowe record. And he said, man, he says, I love the way you guys play modern music. He said, we don't have a rhythm section like that in Nashville. The A team was now in their mid thirties to, to forties, okay? And they were looking to bring along a young rhythm section because young artists want to record with young people, <laughs> okay? You know, and, uh, uh, Harold Bradley admitted to me uh, 15 or 20 years ago that uh, Nashville was, they operated on collusion, okay? He said about once every two months there'd be a dinner party at Francis Preston's house or Chet Atkins or Orrin Bradley's. And it would be three top publishers, three top producers. And he said, after dinner, it was always the same thing guys collectively what do we need to do to take Nashville to the world how can we make Nashville bigger and Harold said I don't know if it was Ray who was there he said you might might bring those kids from Muscle Shoals up here and groom them for a while but uh, Felton Jarvis was a big part of that and he's now in Nashville running ABC Paramount but they didn't tell us that we were being groomed for anything so they said, come on up here. You'll probably play a lot of demos. Well, I get to town. We're doing all the demos for A-Cuff Ross. We're doing all the demos for Screen Jams, all of them for Combine, which was Fred Foster's thing, right? And Harold <clears throat> said, every one of those demos came across Chet's desk, Noah's desk, and they could follow your progress as players in Nashville. And then they would pick us off one at a time. Chet loved Kerrigan. He did all the country dates at RCA. I did everything for Fred Foster. And Briggs, Briggs was, uh, he was playing, he became a, a great country pianist, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, and so suddenly we were all working. You know, I was doing J.J. Kale, After Midnight is My Bass, you know? And uh, uh, collectively, we did Tony Joe White's Folk Salad Annie. And we played like a muscle shoals rhythm section, right? right. And uh, so uh, uh, also we had gotten our sight reading together. Uh, I worked with Henry Mancini. He came to Nashville. He, every note I played on that record was on his on a paper. He handed it to me. You know? <laughs> he said, Norbert, play the paper, no ad living. <laughs> and so we were doing Al Hurt and a 50-piece orchestra. Kerrigan was a great big band drummer. And uh, so it was pretty exciting to go from all of those different genres of music. And um, yes, yeah, so you, you became the A team. Well, we, we were the young A team, okay. Right. And uh, as a matter of fact, within five years, we were, we were working as much as the top guys. In 1970, I played 625 record dates that year. Wow. Uh, oh, that's and then. 
and you could earn $100,000 just driving, going down to the studios. <laughs> so that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that would be good now. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And the, that money today would be over a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought I was rich in 1970, and I went down and bought a new Porsche off the showroom floor. You know what it cost? What? $7,200. <laughs> a Porsche 911. <laughs> Big money. Inflation. It was big money in that day. It was. So uh, tell me, so, so you, you worked on over 80 records with Elvis Presley. Tell well, me actually, how that, those sessions came about. Through Felton, okay. Right? Uh, yeah, because, uh, you know, he went down to Memphis and Chip's moment just took over the whole show and made great music with him, okay. Chips had great songs for him. But there was some bad feelings about it. And uh, uh, over, the, over the way, he just sort of pushed Felton aside and all of Elvis's people. And, and when they got ready to do another record, uh, supposedly Elvis said to Felton, find me another rhythm section that plays like uh, Chips's guys. Oh, by the way, Tommy Cogbill was the bass player for Chips. And he was the bass player on Aretha, wasn't he? He yes. and he, he and he and uh, and Chips come down because Rick didn't have a guitar player and a bass player, and his playing on Aretha stuff, Muscle Shoals. My favorite bass player in all of the South is Tommy Cogbill. Okay, and so so anyway, a Felton calls. He told Felton said, well, "Let's get the Muscle Shoals kids. They would be the closest to a rhythm session like that." So Briggs Kerrigan and I come in and James Burton comes from the live show, who was great on all of his early Ricky Nelson records, you know. And, uh, and Charlie McCoy was there, he could play everything in the room. <laughs> he could play a trumpet, a saxophone, an organ, vibes, great harp player, great right. bass player. <laughs> and uh, that was the rhythm section. And so we go into RCA studios, it was June, uh, 1970, and um, Felton uh, in Nashville, all the studios were organized. You could only book a room from 10 to 1, 2 to 5, 6 to 9, 10 to 1 a.m. And the musicians demanded this. You couldn't book a morning session from 11 to 2 because he couldn't make a 2 o'clock session at another studio. Yes. And so... <clears throat> I was still playing a lot. This, this would be the last year I would play. And uh, uh, so I've got a six to nine, 10 to one with Elvis Presley every night. And most days I had a 10 in the morning in the studio, go to another studio from two to five, go over to RC eight, six o'clock, right? And, and Elvis would always come at eight o'clock because he was nocturnal. He got up at five, had his breakfast at six. <clears throat> and uh, and when he came in that first time, I looked at this guy. I thought he was the most beautiful man I'd ever seen. His face, his complexion, and he was in perfect physical condition. Okay, there was an ounce of fat on that body. Okay, and uh, since he had met all of us, he said, "I want all let's all gather around. I want to tell you what I've been doing." Right, and we looked around. And RCA Studio B, all the chairs were around the parameter. Elvis sat down in the middle of the floor on the tile surface, 
and we made a circle around. It was it wasn't really clean, I have to tell you. <laughs> and so, for two hours, Elvis Presley had us rolling with these Elvis stories of, of people stealing his clothes, climbing the fence where he lived. And, uh, he was a great raconteur. And at the end of the, it's ten o'clock when I looked up. Now we've already made one session with an hour overtime. Okay, and we haven't had a note. That's what I loved about Nashville and the union. You could actually make money and they had to pay you in two weeks. The union could stop the trucks from leaving the pressing plants. That's how strong it was. So about 10 o'clock, he turned around to Jarvis and said, Felton, what are we doing anyway? Like he didn't know, right? <laughs> and uh, we started. And, uh, and one of the things about the Nashville guys, they could all write a chart for themselves. They would play the demo and I'd grab a legal pad and I would take down the baseline and any syncopations that I thought we might use. And Kira gonna do the same thing and Briggs is doing it. So is Charlie McCoy. And Chip Young played guitar. And Elvis, a lot of times he hadn't even heard the song. He'd sing it two or three times to the demo singer. And then he turned to us and said, you guys have that? And we said, we do. And he would say, well, what key was that? And Dave would say it was Elf. Well, take it up. You give an F sharp. Take it up some more. G. Okay, it's G. We'd write it in numbers. I just put G up there, and all my numbers now work with the G scale, right? And you know, the first time we played it, there were no mistakes. And I was going, how do you do that? <laughs> we said, well, we're actually reading a little chart and listening to you. And by the way, there were no headphones in 1970 when we did this, this track. Well, between 10 in the evening and 4 or 5 in the morning, we were getting five, six, seven completed tracks with vocal. We played it until the king got the vocal. Okay. And when he got it on the first time, we could go up to him and we'd, we'd take turns doing this. It was my turn. I would go and stand beside him and say, hey, Putt, what do you think? I'd say, <clears throat> I'd say, always, could you do one more for me? Oh, yeah, sure. What do you want to do? I'm going to change my part, Elvis, in the chorus. And I think David's going to swap his part. Oh, let's do it. He'd say, let's do it again. You know? <laughs> and then he'd go out and kill it again. Okay. This, he never ever said, well, I got mine. Why didn't you get yours? And he would do maybe four or five more tracks until we were happy. And he would kill it every time with that vocal. So we loved this guy, right? We, and and what, that first week, we did 39 songs in five nights working six hours. How's that? Wow. And they, they kept, we did 39, they kept 35. They made up almost four albums over the next three, four years. And uh, boy, he could go fast and we could go fast. And so that was, uh, that was a wonderful thing. Yeah. I loved him. He was more fun than any artist I ever worked with. And he treated us like we were the star, you know? And uh, he, he was just a sweetheart. Yeah, I hear you. So you, did, you, did you work with Elvis up until his, his death? Yes. Yes. Um, I played on a total of 120 songs from 1970 up until he dies. And uh, Felton Jarvis called me one day 
Elvis was out touring. This is three months before he dies. And I'd, I'd seen some of the shots of him. He was really overweight. And I'd actually worked with him a little bit at Grace Night when he was, he really looked like death warmed over up there. But Felton called me one day and said, but last night, he said, oh, we've been recording his concerts. I thought that was interesting. Like they must have had some premonition he might not make it. He said, uh, last night in Shaganaw, Michigan or someplace, Elvis decided to sing that old Everly Brothers song, not Everly Brothers, uh, Righteous Brothers, Unchained Melody, right? He went over the piano and sat down and sang Unchained Melody. He said, it's the best vocal he's done in years. Can you come over tomorrow and put a bass part on? The band stood there while Elvis played the piano and did this great vocal. And Bobby Ogden came and reproduced the piano part because Elvis had a couple bad notes. And I put a bass part on and I flew to Hawaii two months later with my kids for a little summer vacation. And while I was there, one day I, uh, we were over in Princeville in Hawaii. My wife asked me to go down to the little general store in Hawaii and pick up some food. And when I got in the car and turned on the radio, they were playing Elvis. And then they played another Elvis. And when I got to Hawaii, I thought, I'm going to call that junk because American stations did not play Elvis really after 1970. You only had one hit, Burning Love, okay? And so I go in, I'm, I'm, I'm in a little general store, one gas here. I'm standing behind a kid who's camping out up in the hills. The college kids get a lean-to and go up there. What is it? And the, the college kid leans over to the cashier and said, hey, do you hear about old Presley? And the cashier said, no, what? He checked out. I, I grabbed a wad of money, threw it at the guy, ran to the car and turned on the radio. I felt like it was my fault. <laughs> you know, I thought, why didn't someone order him to dry up? You know, he could have been, he could have, but he was pretty far gone at that point. And I just sat there and, and bawled like a baby in my car. And uh, I, I came back and called Briggs and, uh, and he said, yeah, it happened like in the middle of the night, 3, 4 a.m. And I was trying to decide if I needed to fly back. He said, Norbert, is going to be 200,000 people in Memphis. So I didn't fly back. But uh, he was uh, one of the, the two greatest artists I ever played with <laughs> was Elvis Presley and Ray Charles. And every, I, I, I said to Priscilla, I saw her years later, and she said, uh, what did you really think of Elvis? I said, well, I said, I tell people that up here we had Elvis Presley and down here we had everyone else. Well, actually, I wanted to say Ray as well. Ray and Elvis had more soul than the rest of them put together. And, uh, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, he's still the biggest selling artist in the world. Did you know that? Yeah. His catalog. And uh, every year they put out uh, well, those those parts I played in 1970 probably existed on 30 or 40 albums. Elvis Presley, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, he had a he had a big hit, you know, in the last last several years with a uh, little less conversation. Our buddy Max yeah. Davis, 
They, yeah, they one of those that. Swedish kids did a dance version of it, took the vocal out. Yeah. And, uh, so, so he was great. Still having hits. Yeah. But, you know, I, I got into producing records that same year I worked with Presley. And, uh, uh, and that was because, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I got into producing, and that was because of Chris Christopherson. I had introduced him to Joan Baez in the late 60s. And David and I, meanwhile, have decided it's 1970, we're going to get out of playing. 625 record dates was killing me. I was playing at least three every day. I'd leave home at nine o'clock and come home at 10 in the evening or 2 a.m. And even though I'm only 28 years old, <laughs> you know, you play intently. Nashville players never made a mistake. My, on Monday morning, I would say, okay, we're going to make it all the way to Friday, but no bad notes, because those guys didn't play any bad notes. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I got, I, uh, I got a call from Joan Baez, and she said, uh, thanks for introducing me to Chris. I'm coming down to do another record. David and I were building a studio in an old house. And I said, well, would you come and record at my studio? We were just completing it. She said, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, and she said, Chris is going to produce. Great. We loved Chris. You know, David and Kerrigan and I and Chip and uh, Chip Young actually helped Chris do his first demos on a Saturday morning in two hours for nothing. We were we had no idea this guy was a Rhodes Scholar because <laughs> he had that Texas accent to belied the fact he, he was an A student in English. <laughs> so, so when Byron says uh, he's going to produce, I thought, well, we love him. We'd already, bothered. at this point, he's already made his first movie. He's had a bunch of hit records that we played on. And, uh, and so they're coming to my studio and Joni said, we're going to do 24 songs. And so I thought I would go real slow. I booked 15 sessions. And Nashville did four songs every three hours and took two breaks on the hour. And there was no pressure. These guys played it perfect for a first and second time, you know. <clears throat> and so I booked 15 sessions. And, and we're going to do a two to five, six to nine, 10 to one a.m. all week at the first quad studio, okay? And I came in about a quarter to two. And I look back past the, the coffee area in the corner back there is Chris Christopherson. And he's stiff in the corner like this. And he's holding a bottle of Jack Daniels down here. And he's not moving. <laughs> I look back to it. I said, now, Chris, I, said, I don't want you to worry about this producer thing. I said, if you will go in that control room and sip your whiskey and say nothing, this band will make her a great record. And that was true, okay? And uh, I'm not doing it. Oh God, oh, no, don't tell me that. If I, if I have to cancel 15 guys, they'll kill me. This is a whole week's work. I said, no, I said, no, you can do this. I'm telling you, you can do this. We'll help you do it. Not doing it. I've been talking to Johnny and we think you ought to do it. I said, what? Yeah, you could do this. I said, where's Johnny? So I ran and I found Johnny. I said, have you seen Chris? Norbert, Chris is drunk. Can you help me make this record? I said, yeah. And she said, you could plug your bass in the desk. 
I thought she might have chosen Briggs, but she could, could have got the piano. In there. <laughs> and so I plugged my bass in and we started and we did uh, 24 sides in five nights and had a lot of fun. The third night, Johnny pulled out uh, the night they drove old Dixie down or Robbie Robertson. I had heard the song maybe once by the band. And uh, she so and she sort of had the arrangement. That's her playing that da da dee da da dee dom jik dom. And she played. She stood up in the front room. The second room we had some, some doors, glass doors you could pull shut. The whole rhythm sections in there. And the drummers over here in the kitchen with glass. So, so, um, so we followed her lead. We made that that track without listening to the band. Okay, and we hooked it in about. Uh, four or five takes. And then Joni said, uh, do you hear anything? I said, I'd love to hear an audience sing it. Like, you know, at a concert, the audiences will sing along softly, right? And she said, well, where will we get a choir? And out in the hall was a collection of Nashville's greatest songwriters and their girlfriends. We had them all come into the main room. They were all drunk at this point, about 10 o'clock. And, uh, and they all sang. And we were moving the drunks farther back and anybody could sing their pitch and we put it on three times. And then the next week I had the holiday sisters come on in again and put that sort of in front of it. But it's a heck of a choir sound, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and the record sold a million copies. And Clive Davis calls me and says, I want you to fly to New York. I want to talk to you. So I fly to New York and he said, Oh, he said, I want you to produce all the folkies on CBS. I said, I don't like folk music. He said, he said, you just produced. He said, Joan Baez never sells more than 100,000. You just sold a million copies. You know something about folk music. I thought, I said, well, you know, I'd rather do black music with horns. And he said, I just signed Gamble and Huff. Oh, you signed Gamble and Huff? And Tom Bell? You signed Tom Bell? I can't beat those guys. I said, so who you got? <laughs> he said, he said, I got this kid Fogelberg, and he's 19 years old. At this point, Clive was a little put out with me for not jumping, you know. He just slid, and I looked at it, he slid it across his desk and said, Fogelberg, what an interesting name. He said, take this home and listen to it. And I've got an Eric Anderson album I want you to finish for me. Well, the Eric Anderson album was called Blue River. Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone magazine picked it as one of the best albums of the year. And uh, and I produced Dan Fogelberg's Home Free album. That got me started, you know. And that's when I announced to the Nashville community I wouldn't be taking any more bass sessions. <laughs> and after, after that, I got, uh, a few years later, young uh, Jimmy Buffett called me up and he wanted to record with his road band. And his producer, Don Gant, who was one of my closest friends, and a great singer, Don Gant, great producer. When, when Jimmy went in and said, I think the studio guys sound a little too, too uh, organized and soft. I want to, I'm a rock guy. Don Gant said, I will not work with road players. <laughs> and, so, and so he called me and we sat down. And, and I said, OK, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I'll come and see your band because they're going to play at Hermitage Land in a few weeks. And if they can really play, uh, we'll talk about it. 
I went out there and I loved the band. They were they were a bunch of rock players. They were drunk and they were smoking. They were too, and they were and it God, this Jimmy Buffett band had energy. We went past his songs. So the next week, Buffett and I got together, and all the songs he played me were about the Caribbean, the islands, the sailing, and the drinking and carousing and. Uh, and I went back to Sam Phillips. Old Sam had one mantra. Sam always said, whatever you're doing, if you're not doing it a little differently, you're probably wasting your time. So I'm listening to Jimmy Buffett's rock band, but the songs are kind of islandish. And I said to him, and he didn't like it. I said, what if we were to use a few island flavors like Recorders, wooden flutes, and maybe uh, marimbas, maybe steel drums. Buffett's gone, oh man, I don't know about this. <laughs> and when he left that night, I didn't think I'd ever see him again. And about two weeks later, Jimmy Buffett calls me. He goes, you know that idea you had? He said, uh, it might work. I said, you think so? He said, I started the first song. Oh, I guess, I guess we're going to work together. I said, well, what's it called? <clears throat> it's called Changes in Attitudes, Changes in Latitudes. We're leaving Nashville, we're going to the ocean. I said, you're on that. <laughs> and I took him, his road crew. I rented a big mansion on the bay. We had 20 something people sleeping in sleeping bags, but we had a chef and a maid. And, uh, and the roadies were the, I set up a bar in the studio. And um, I think the third day, oh, I said, now, Jimmy, I said, you got to understand, I only work from 11 o'clock to 5 every day. He goes, are you kidding? You don't work at night? This is me getting away from the studio scene. I, you know, my first wife is leaving me because I'm never home. Right? So, so I said, uh, and so, so we'd have breakfast every morning, then we'd have dinner every night and talk about the day's work, just the two of us. We were ready the next day. And he said to me that night, he said, no, I started another song. Said, I've actually been working on it for a while. And I'm going to try to finish it before, before the record's over. I said, well, what's it about? It's actually about, <laughs> you know, I got that place down in Key West. He said, uh, one night I went down, I played a, in a bar just in my flip-flops and swimsuit and a T-shirt. And then coming home, I stepped on a beer can, cut my foot. And the next morning, I've got a terrible hangover. I'm trying to make a margarita, and I put some, some shrimp on the barbie, and I'm out in the front porch swing when I get to. It's just kind of like a, a night and a day of my life that I'm sort of embarrassed about. I said, well, what are you going to call that? I said, I think I'm going to call it Margaritaville, which is sort of the way I feel that should be the name of Key West, because everybody's drunk down there. <laughs> and and I, I thought, I said, well, I hope you get it finished, you know. And about two days before we shut down, he came in one morning and played it. It was the best lyric he'd ever written. Just put that, show that lyric to any young songwriter and have him just study it, okay? Jimmy covered all the bases. You know, you know, a, a song is the shortest short story in the world, right? But all stories. I remember in ninth grade literature class, I missed this question. What is the most important element of every great story? 
conflict. Yeah, conflict. You can't have war and peace without conflict. Right? Well, Jimmy's singing about this, and you know, sure he's drunk and he's trying to get himself going, but there's no real conflict. It's just it's just him and he's drinking, hurting himself. He gets to the chorus. Some people claim there's a woman to blame. He goes, but I know it's my own damn fault, right? Oh, now we have the conflict. We have resolution. You got to give the guy a hug, right? <laughs> so I thought, you know, it's just a perfect song. And uh, and it's, uh, and Jimmy has uh, funded my retirement many times over. <laughs> and you know what? I've, I funded his as a... <laughs> Do what? I, I said I funded his retirement. So he, the good thing about Jimmy, he still goes out and does those songs every year. And my catalog, I do the next six albums, right? And uh, that made up all his greatest hits. And so I love Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. He has made a career off Margaritaville, and uh, it's, just, it's, it's crazy to see what kind of marketing. Cheeseburgers in Paradise. That was our second hit, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was a great time in my life, and uh, great time for Jimmy too. And so David and I, we, you know, our our studio Quadraphonic is the most successful Nashville independent in the seventies. The second year, I, I do John Baez. The next year, Neil Young comes in and does uh, "Keep Me Searching for a Heart of Gold." Right. It's the biggest selling record in the world that year. Okay. And then the, the third year, Dobie Gray does Drift Away. And that was one of the biggest records in the third year. And uh, and so, I don't know, fate. Uh, yeah. Been involved <laughs> in a lot of great stuff, Robert. So great to have you on here today. Just wanted to thank you for your contributions to the Muscle Shoals music scene. You know, there's a, there's a line of bass players that have come through Muscle Shoals, David Hood, Junior Lowe, Jesse Boyce, Bob Ray, and even today, yeah. Hart from Jason Isbell's band. And you yeah. started, started that whole lineage. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's awesome to see it all unfold over the years and just your contributions to it all. And, and you've always been there for us. Thank you for being here today. You've always helped us out. When we My pleasure. My pleasure. Someone, and uh, I appreciate your friendship, and I appreciate uh, everything you do. Love Say you hello to your mom for me, okay? I will do it. Love you, brother. I hope you have a great afternoon. Too. Thank you for being here. All right. All right, pal. Bye-bye.